Are you looking for headphones that provide quality sound, are stylish, and have up to nine hours battery life? Then Studio is the brand for you. At Studio, they want to revolutionize the way people see headphones as not just a tech device, but also an accessory. Currently, the headphones market can offer you one of two things, style or tech. Fashionable headphones tend to lack the proper sound quality in high-tech variation, are bulky and not design-oriented. Studio want to bridge that gap. While emphasizing their modern Scandinavian design, they also provide a product that matches the quality of even the highest-rated headphones on the market for a fraction of the cost. So head over to studio.com today. That's S-U-D-I-O dot com to receive a 15% discount of any purchase, including free worldwide shipping, using the discount code Nordic True Crime or see the link in the show notes. Remember, that's studio.com. We would like to begin this episode by saying thank you to our patron members. We really do appreciate the support you guys give the show. Since the turn of the year, we have also gained a few new members on the Patreon platform. These include Celia Jiring, Susan J.B. Carey, and Deb Ryle. Welcome to the Nordic True Crime family. If you too would like to become a patron of the show and receive access to extra monthly episodes, as well as previously uploaded episodes, then find us at patreon.com forward slash Nordic True Crime or see the link in the show notes. Known as Bodominjärvi in Finnish or Bodomtresk in Swedish, Lake Bodom is a body of water situated by the suburbs of the city of Espo, roughly 25 minutes from Helsinki, the capital city of Finland. When a group of friends embarked on a camping trip on the banks of the lake on a warm summer's day, little did they know that only one of them would make it out alive, and the crime would go on to become one of the most infamous in Finnish history spanning an incredible 44 years. A case which will spawn countless books, documentaries, movies, conspiracy theories, and even the name of a rock band. This is Nordic True Crime. The country of Finland is situated in northern Europe, with Sweden bordering its northwest, Estonia to the south, Russia to the east and Norway to the north. The country is also commonly referred to as 
the land of a thousand lakes. And it's pretty clear why. There are some 187,888 lakes in Finland, larger than 500 square meters, with about 57,000 of these consisting of an area larger than 10,000 square meters. On the 4th of June, 1960, in the middle of an extreme heat wave, four young friends decided to go camping for the weekend by the scenic lake Bodom, an impressive lake which is about three kilometers long, one kilometer wide, and home to two islands. The group included two boys, Seppo Boisman and Nils Gustafsson, who were both 18 years old, and two girls, Irmeli Björklund and Tuliki Mäki, who were both 15 years old. Tuliki and Seppo had been dating for some time, whilst Irmeli and Nils had only really began flirting with one another. None of them had told their parents where they were going that weekend or with whom. So the girls were picked up in secrecy by the boys on their motorcycles, and they then drove off to the beautiful lake where they had planned to spend the weekend together. They made just the one stop on their way at a local kiosk where they bought some orange juice before continuing their journey. On arrival at the lake, they quickly found a good spot to erect their tent. The boys used the orange juice as a mixer for the alcohol they had brought with them. But the girls decided that they didn't want to drink the concoction and stuck with the non-alcoholic beverages. They all stayed up late, drinking and talking throughout the night. The next morning, a woman called Siv Modin and her cousin arrived at Bodum for their morning swim. Then something strange happened. She suddenly heard a strange noise and decided to have a look around to find out where it came from, believing that it was a wounded animal or something of that nature. But when she turned the corner, a truly horrifying sight lay in wait. Nils was lying halfway out of the tent, which had been sliced open on one of its sides. His jaw was broken and he had multiple crush and laceration wounds on his face and head. He was unconscious, but still breathing. Inside the tent, Tuliki and Seppo were both dead. Their skulls had been crushed by a blunt object, most likely a large rock, and they had been stabbed several times with a knife. This had seemingly happened from the outside of the tent, since the evidence later showed that the knife had in fact penetrated the tent from the exterior. The same applied for the rock-like object. On top of the collapsed tent lay Irmeli. She was naked from the waist down and had received the worst injuries of them all. She had been savagely beaten around the head and was stabbed several times, many of which occurred after she had died. The police were called to the scene 
and the murder investigation began. Nils was rushed to the hospital, where he eventually awoke, but he couldn't remember anything about the incident. The police later carried out an interview with Nils, but it was pointless due to the severity of his head injuries. He still couldn't recall anything from that terrifying night at the lake. It was soon established that the attack had occurred sometime between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. and that many of the teenagers' belongings were missing, such as Seppo's leather jacket and their wallets and watches. Strangely enough, the keys to the boys' motorbikes were nowhere to be seen, but the actual bikes were still at the crime scene. The detectives had also discovered bloody footprints leading away from the camp. The footprints matched Neil's shoes, who was the only survivor of the attack, and these shoes were later found amongst some shrubs, roughly 500 meters from the crime scene, together with Seppel's shoes and other items of clothing belonging to the victims. Unfortunately, the police made some glaring errors during their investigation. They never properly sealed off the crime scene and had asked the public to help them in their search for the youngsters' missing items, which led to numerous people walking all over the crime scene contaminating any evidence which the killer may have left behind. They also managed to lose the five different knives which belonged to the victims, one of which could have been the murder weapon. They then decided to give some of the victims' clothes back to their families just days after the murder items of clothing which could have contained vital clues. However, they did keep the tent as evidence. Who had committed this horrible attack? A number of strange and mysterious things had recently occurred or had been claimed to have occurred, and the police were not short of suspects. Two younger men had been seen fishing during the night nearby the tent site, but it appeared that they left in a hurry since they had left behind many of the fish they had caught. Despite the police pleading in the media for the men to come forward so that they could help with the investigation in regards to what they might have seen or heard, Nobody ever came forward. And to this day, it is still unknown who the men were. The police tried to help Nils recall something from the night of the attack by arranging for him to be hypnotized by a doctor. During this session, Nils told the doctor about a man who sliced the tent open with a knife and attacked them with what he thought was a steel pipe of some sort. A composite sketch was made of the alleged man from Nils account. It shows a man with a rough jaw and a high forehead, with his eyes situated deep into his skull. 
nobody recognized the man from the drawings or could see any resemblance to anybody they knew. But that was only until the teenager's funeral took place. The whole village had shown up to pay their respects, and the media were also in attendance taking pictures of the mourners. And in one of the pictures, in the middle of the crowd, there was a man that nobody recognized or even knew why he was there or who he was there with. The more alarming thing was that he looked very much like the man that Nils had described under hypnosis. Some young boys had stated that they had been birdwatching in the area and had observed a blonde man leaving the campsite after the tent had been destroyed. Several other witnesses also claimed to have seen a blonde man in the surrounding area at the same time. And on the day after the killings, a blonde and seemingly confused and injured man walked into the surgical hospital in Helsinki. He was dirty and his clothes were covered in what looked like splatters of blood. He acted very strangely by pretending to be unconscious and then suddenly became very aggressive. The man's name was Hans Asmann. He was a German man who had been an SS camp guard at the concentration camps in Auschwitz during the Second World War. However, he fell in love with a Jewish woman inside the camp, and when this was later found out by the Nazis, he was sent to the front line as punishment. But during an attack, he was captured by Russian soldiers and was later turned and became a spy for the KGB. At the time of the murders in Bodom, Hans lived nearby and he also resembled the composite sketch. Could it possibly have been Hans in the picture from the funeral? And if so, why was he attending the service? Hans was also previously suspected in the involvement of the murder of 17-year-old Kiliki Sari. She vanished on her way home from a church meeting in 1953 and was later found buried in a swamp. According to the autopsy report, the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head. Hans Asman's wife said that her husband and his chauffeur had been driving around in the same area where Kuliki disappeared from and at roughly the same time of the disappearance. His car had also been seen by others, backing up his wife's claim. She also stated that when he came home that night, he had no socks on and his shoes were soaked through. She also said that she noticed a big dent on the front of the car. In 1997, Hans confessed to having killed Kiliki. He claimed that his driver accidentally ran over her, causing her death 
and that they decided to hide the body in the swamp. However, Hans passed away before the police had any time to investigate his claims further. There was also another suspect, a man called Valdemar Jülström. He was the owner of the kiosk where the teenagers had bought the orange juice from, which was relatively close to where they had planned to camp. Valdemar was well known in the local area for his aggressive and strange behavior. According to a man called Ulf Johansson, who grew up in the same neighborhood and who was the same age as the victims were in 1960, no locals would ever camp where the kids did. Everybody knew how much Valdemar hated and even despised campers and would often walk around and cut their tent robes in an attempt to scare them away from the area. He would sometimes even throw rocks at passers-by and had fired his shotgun at youngsters passing by on their motorbikes because, as he put it, they were driving on his road. Furthermore, to avoid people stealing his apples, he would hide razor blades inside some of them, a harsh lesson to keep people away from what was his. He also had a history of mental illness and had even spent time inside a mental institution. He would have episodes of extreme violence mixed with periods of calm in which he would be very manipulative. But since Seppo, Nils, Irmeli and Tuliki were not from the local area, they had never heard about Valdemar and his reputation. Several of the locals had in fact seen Valdemar close to the crime scene around the time of the murders, but nobody dared to tell the police. They were all too afraid of him. Just two days after the murder, Valdemar had filled in the well which he had in his yard and sealed it shut. This, of course, was a very suspicious act to carry out, especially since many of the victims' missing belongings were never found, and of course, the bottom of a well would be a good place to hide such things. The police brought Valdemar in for questioning and also searched his home for any incriminating evidence. However, the well was never looked at. Nevertheless, it turned out that Valdemar had an alibi for the night of the murder. He had been in his bed sleeping the whole night, next to his wife, who verified her husband's statement. The police had no other leads, despite what was known about Hans and Valdemar, and the case went cold. Very cold. It wasn't until... 44 years later, in the year 2004, that the case was surprisingly resurrected. Astonishingly, the main suspect this time was none other than Nils Gustafsson, the sole survivor of the attack. The prosecutor claimed that Nils 
did remember what happened that night by Lake Bodom, and that he had just pretended not to have any recollection about what really took place. A new witness had came forward. A woman said that she was camping that same night close to the four teenagers, and in the middle of the night, the two boys had entered her tent. According to her, Nils had become very aggressive. Previously, other witnesses had said that they had in fact heard loud arguing coming from the youngster's campsite. According to the prosecutor, Nils had been interested sexually in Irmeli. He had brought a condom with him to the campsite, hoping to get lucky later that night. But Irmeli still had a boyfriend, even though she had been flirting with Nils. Since the boys had been drinking alcohol the whole night, Nils became drunk and had approached Irmeli but she had rejected his advances, and in turn, Nils became very angry. It all escalated into a massive fistfight between Nils and Seppo, leading to Seppo breaking Nils' jawbone and inflicting the other damages to his face. Or it was a possibility that Nils had inflicted the damage to his face by himself after he committed the murders. Irmeli, Seppo and Tuliki then decided to lock themselves in the tent by tying the string tightly on the inside so that Nils couldn't get in. Consumed with rage and jealousy, Nils picked up a rock and smashed the heads of his friends and then stabbed them 15 to 20 times each. It is believed that Irmeli managed to run out of the tent, but Nils soon caught up with her and hit her on the back of the head with a rock, dragged her back to the campsite, stripped her of her clothes on the lower part of her body before stabbing her. He then took all their valuables and hid them in an attempt to make it look like a robbery gone wrong. Seppo's shoes, which had been found hidden about 500 meters away from the crime scene, were tested for DNA, but it was only his own blood which was found on the shoes. Nonetheless, the outside of Neil's shoes tested positive for everyone's blood, but nothing was found on the inside of the shoes. So it was believed that he was wearing the shoes during the attack and then hid them in the bushes when the gruesome act was complete. However, Neil's defense team began to poke big holes in the prosecutor's version of events. Was it really possible for Nils to kill all of his friends by himself and then run 500 meters to hide his and his friend's shoes in the bushes and to then finally go back to the tent, lie down, knock himself unconscious, and wait to be found by a passerby several hours later. And if so, what did he do with all the missing items, such as Seppo's leather jacket and all their wallets? 
did he really manage to hide all of these items during the night whilst injured without leaving a trail of blood in such a secure place that nobody would ever find it? And if Seppo broke Neil's jaw in the fist fight, could he really carry out a triple murder with a broken jawbone? And if not, how was he able to break it by himself, cut his face and give himself a head injury to make it look like he had also been attacked? On the 4th of August 2004, the 63-year-old retired bus driver Nils Gustafsson was charged with the triple murder of his friends. But this wasn't the end. About one year later, on the 7th of October 2005, Nils was cleared of all charges. And the prosecutor? Well, he decided not to appeal the court's decision. When asked by the press if he had committed the murders, Nils replied that he was innocent and that's the end of it. He had never changed his original story, which he had told the police back in 1960. It was now 45 years since the murders, and he still stated that he was innocent and that he couldn't remember what had happened that night. So who killed Seppo, Irmeli and Tuliki? Well, remember Valdemar? the infamous owner of the kiosk where the victims had stopped to buy some juice. In 1969, Valdemar and his neighbor were drinking alcohol and having a sauna together when Valdemar allegedly confessed to the murders, a confession he made on no less than three different occasions. The police, however, had deemed it to be drunk talk since Valdemar was known to have an alcohol problem. Despite this confession, his neighbor was terrified that he might be next and tried to downplay what his friend had said by saying that he shouldn't claim to have done such things if it wasn't true. To which Valdemar replied, You better believe I did it, you fool. He then asked his neighbor what he should do now, to which he replied that if he had indeed killed them, he should now kill himself, because he would end up spending the rest of his life in prison. Just a few hours later, Valdemar walked down to Lake Bodom and drowned himself. Several years later, when Valdemar's wife was on her deathbed, she confessed that her husband never spent the night with her the same night the murders took place. She claimed that Valdemar had threatened to kill her if she didn't lie to the police by giving him the alibi that he desperately needed. Despite this information, and since there was never any DNA testing carried out, it can never be determined for certain whether or not Valdemar was in fact the killer. 
So that same question is still to be answered. Who killed Tuliki, Irmeli and Seppo at Lake Bodom that warm summer night in 1960? Was it Hans Asman, the former spy and SS officer? Was it Valma Jullström, the aggressive kiosk owner? Was it Nils Gustafsson, the only survivor of the attack? Or was it in fact someone else who committed the murders? A question that is unlikely to ever be answered with certainty. tired of hearing you talk about serial killers while you're at a dinner party have you randomly blurted out the odds of being murdered by a complete stranger does netflix only recommend documentaries on true crime and murder if you've answered yes to one or more of these questions come over and sit at our friends table i'm cam and i'm jen and we are the co-host of our true crime podcast and you can listen to us every wednesday wherever you download your podcasts see you on wednesday oh bye bye Love ya. I'm Rosie. And I'm Ryan. And we make the Voice of the Victim podcast. We share stories about horrible things that happen to real people, and we try our best to tell it from the perspective of the victims and the survivors. We also try to spread awareness of abuse that could be taking place around any of us, and talk about ways we can stay alert to help prevent it. We want to be encouraging to survivors and help other empathetic people to appreciate the value of awareness. Find Voice of the Victim podcast anywhere you listen to podcasts. And remember, if you see something, say something. <laughs>